I really see waiting as a means of transformation. Mm. And that's not something at face value we think waiting can offer us. Similar to grief, grief feels like the only experience we can have in grief is uh, a taking one. Mm. We can't imagine that it has something to give us or Mm -hmm. offer us. And for me, waiting often felt like that. It was just here to withhold or to take um, things that I really cared for or Mm -hmm. longed for. So I see waiting as a means of transformation now and Mm -hmm. really redefining what waiting is. Mm Because I think for me, I had associated waiting with passivity Mm -hmm. and powerlessness that, okay, waiting means I sit here and I twiddle my thumbs until life happens to me, better or for worse. And like you referred to the word agency, um, being able to engage our waiting from an empowered place where Mm -hmm. we recognize, oh, I have agency over my life. Right. And obviously we don't have control over everything, but we certainly have agency. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. All right, friends, this week on the Living Centered Podcast, Hannah and I get to introduce you to another one of our on-site guides, the incredible therapists who lead our in-person and online intensives and group workshops week in and week out. I'm so excited to introduce you to Barbara Hill. Barb is a licensed mental health therapist, founder of Holding Space Counseling in Franklin, Tennessee, and the author of the new book, Seasons of Waiting. I loved this conversation. Barb gave us a beautiful reframe for the seasons that many of us try to avoid, waiting. I know that in seasons of waiting and that in-between season, it's the hopelessness for me that is the hardest part. So Barb and Hannah and I leaned into that emotion that so many of us feel, and Barb left us with some really beautiful practical ways to lean into transition, lean into waiting, and reframe our experiences in a way that help us better connect with ourselves and the people around us. So without further ado, meet our friend, Barb. Welcome, Barb. We're so excited to sit with you. Um, I'd love to just kind of have our listeners get to know you a little bit, but I thought it might be fun to say, like, can you give us a snapshot of what this season of your life looks like? Mm, wow. I'll try to put that in a snapshot. Give <laughs> <laughs> me a long snapshot. Yes. snapshot. Okay. So I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, originally from the East Coast, from Baltimore, Maryland, moved here about five years ago. I'm a licensed therapist. I have a private practice called Holding Space Counseling. And wow, the season of life is full. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of plates in the air um, between managing practice, still doing my client work, coming out to on-site to do intensives, Mm -hmm. getting ready to put this book out into the world. Yeah, lots of really good things. And I think what has surprised me is even though it's a lot of good things, it's still a lot of hard work and yeah. mm-hmm. um, a lot of waiting for these kinds of moments mm-hmm. to, to happen. But still in that, it's it's a lot of effort and kind of in this season trying to find this balance between effort and ease. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that feels like a hard balance to strike. Man, I feel like that I would be a more whole podcast. Yeah. Like when you said a lot of good things, but a lot of hard work. I'm yeah. like, that's so relatable. Mm, like, yeah. I think we like to think that good things are easy mm-hmm. or good things don't exhaust us or good things mm-hmm. come naturally. And mm-hmm. it's like, maybe sometimes, but also it takes a lot of intention and hard yeah. work too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So true. I think um, sometimes I often say is it can be the right thing and still be really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think we have that misconception that it's going to be easy or... Mm-hmm. Um, and one time my uh, my mother-in-law's therapist said this to her, so I don't know if it's true, but this <laughs> therapist said that our bodies don't know the difference between good transition and bad transition or mm. good change and bad change. And so we're still having a reaction to the process of change no matter what's happening. And mm. so I think it's important to care for ourselves in that. Yes. What is it looking like for you in this season to care for yourself and find that balance of ease and effort? Yes, yes. So I'm always wanting to strive to practice what I preach, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so for me, moving my body is really helpful. Mm-hmm. I think because a, a lot, I'm spending a good bit of time sitting yeah. and there's a lot that's coming at me, especially when I'm sitting with clients, there's a lot that I'm absorbing and there's a lot of empathy going out. And so I think it helps to just move my body mm-hmm. um, in a restorative way. There's a lake near where we are here in Nashville, Radnor, mm-hmm. and I live close by. So I'll just walk around the lake and just to kind of move things out of my system, my mind, my body. It's just really helpful for me. And I'm a really relational person. So I think the one of the most uh, unique things that I learned in the process of working as a therapist is mm-hmm. I'm with people all day. Yeah. But I'm not with people yeah. mm-hmm. in the way that it's uh, life-giving for me. Yeah. Um, and mutual even. Mutual, yeah. So also recognizing that being with people, even after a long day of being with clients, right. is still really important for me to fill my cup back up. Mm-hmm. So those two are kind of my mainstays to move my body and to spend intentional time with my people. That's good. Uh, can we rewind a second? I want to know kind of how you got to where you are. What mm-hmm. led you to wanting to become a therapist? What's your journey been like mm-hmm. to get here? Mm-hmm. How'd you get here? Yes. So I feel like it was a, and this may be the story for, for many therapists, but it was not linear at mm-hmm. all. Totally. There were lots of twists and turns uh, along the way to get here. And I feel like I lived a whole a bunch of other lives before I started working as a therapist. And really the the through line in all of the things that I did was coming from a passion to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, the ultimate expression of being able to help people took on the form of being a therapist. Mm-hmm. So um, I served overseas as a missionary for a period of time. I actually worked as an esthetician in the mm-hmm. skincare industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I worked for a nonprofit. I mean, I was kind of all over yeah. the map. And and then this whole idea and concept of being a therapist really just kind of fell into my into my mind and heart through like a series of events. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily grow up in an environment that exposed me to mental health Mm -hmm, and counseling. So I was exposed to that later in life. And when I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been missing out on this whole world. And Mm -hmm. I had no idea I could do this as a profession. And so when that light bulb went off, I was like, oh, okay, this this is is it. This This is what I was meant to do. And so I pursued a master's of biblical counseling, actually had a different idea of maybe how I would be working out uh, my my counseling career and then um, worked for a nonprofit that exposed me to trauma work. And Mm. I was like, okay, really want to work in trauma with trauma. Went to Chicago and um, got a clinical mental health counseling degree so that I could, you know, work and do the things that I do now. And Yeah. yeah, moved from Chicago almost five years ago, came to Nashville, started a private practice in 2019. And now I'm here. Yeah, 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 I love that. Yeah. What drew you to trauma work? It's mm. it's fun. Obviously, trauma is something we're really passionate about here at mm-hmm. Onsite of helping people understand their stories and yeah. trace back the origins and kind of rewrite some narratives around all of that. But it's interesting to hear someone like say, "I was really drawn to trauma work." Yeah. Um, what about that kind of stuck out to you? And mm. what? How do you see yourself come alive in counseling in that atmosphere right now? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a few layers mm-hmm. to that question for me. One thing that really stands out is I've always been really interested in what exists underneath something else. Mm. And for me, that's part of the trauma work that I'll do with clients is, okay, what's presenting? What's in the room? And what would it look like for us to get underneath it Mm -hmm. and get to the root of it? Similar to what you were just saying, getting to the origin Mm -hmm. of that experience or that reaction or that belief that's such a big part of trauma yeah. work and why I was and am drawn to mm-hmm. it um, mm-hmm. is to be able to get underneath things. Because when I when I think about sustainable change yeah. in my life and mm-hmm. a client's life, that feels so central mm-hmm. to long-term sustainable change, that we get to the root um, of why something is here. And I also think it opens us up to a lot of compassion for mm-hmm. ourselves if we can put our experiences and our behaviors in the greater context and knowing, okay, let's let's zoom out and see how we got here. Yeah. yeah. And it opens up so much compassion, so much insight and perspective that I think equips us differently for life. Yeah. Um, how would you, I'm just curious, we 
have a couple ways of defining trauma here, but mm-hmm. maybe if, I, I think trauma is kind of trending right now on the internet. You know, mm-hmm. like if people like to talk about trauma mm-hmm. and and I love that. I love that it's becoming a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's getting less stigmatized or people are yeah. willing to talk about it because we do yeah. have to kind of unearth what's underneath the surface or what's mm-hmm. kind of layers to our story, like you said. Mm-hmm. But how would you kind of describe trauma just so people mm-hmm. can kind of almost engage with wherever they're at in their own healing journey and identify trauma for themselves? What either like how do you define trauma or what do you see as almost like people's lived experiences of trauma in your work? Mm, it's a great question. I'm going to borrow this from an Enneagram coach that Perfect. lives um, <laughs> locally here. But he said that uh, anytime we've felt alone in our pain, mm. that's trauma. And that to me just levels the playing field for what trauma is. That feeling alone in our pain is is part of what gives way to a traumatic, like a yeah, traumatic lived experience. Yeah. And when I think about my role as a therapist, being that empathetic witness to their story, Mm. it's essentially stepping into a moment where they felt alone Mm -hmm. in their pain. And I get to be in it with them and say, hey, I'm here in this with you. We can't go back in time and reverse what happened, but I can bear witness to what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And it almost extracts, um, at least in the present, extracts some of the pain Mm -hmm. from that experience. Mm -hmm. And I think of, hopefully I get this quote right, um, but I think of Maya Angelou's words. She says um, that there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story Mm -hmm. inside of us. Mm -hmm. And so I guess kind of weaving two things together, that being able to bear witness to Mm -hmm. somebody's story and the power that it has to really change our lives. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It I never heard so it described beautiful. that way. Mm. No, I love that. And I think when I think about it in that context, I think that there are situations that we may on the surface label as traumatic, but when we have someone who bears witness and walks with us in that, or if we have a way to right-size it or to mm. be in community or fellowship or process it together, it doesn't always leave us with what we would think would be the effects of this hard, adverse experience. Mm. And so- I think that's such a unique lens to that. I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, Hannah said we just have lots of definitions of trauma flying around here. I think we had a whole episode on one of our podcasts about the definitions of trauma. Yeah, which um, I think is actually really reflective of life. Yeah, we all experience it so differently. Trauma is going to feel really different for all of us. And especially historically, I think it's getting better now. But I think especially in my parents' generation and other things, it's like, oh, well, that's not trauma. Like, or, well, what happened to me wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. Or it's nothing compared to, like, I think we tend to minimize our trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that's a huge part of the work I did in a Living Centered program here was like, oh, no, I can claim that this was Mm -hmm. really hurtful. Yeah. (laughs) Like, this marked me. This changed me. This really, uh, it doesn't even have to be a moment or an experience, but a narrative I've held on to or a worldview I had and so I think I love that there's different definitions of trauma. There's not mm-hmm. like one dictionary mm-hmm. definition. I mean, they, they probably exist somewhere <laughs> out there, but mm-hmm. w- that's not really what we prescribe to necessarily because yeah. it is different. It's going to feel different. But I like that while, while it's really different when we engage with it, there's also kind of like a universal healing. Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. I'm not alone, the uh, I the can change piece. this, I can have agency over some next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really love that wow, we can feel very alone in our trauma. We can feel very together in our healing. Yes, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That was a beautiful way to put that. Mm-hmm. Feel alone in our trauma and yeah. together in our healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we often say that trauma happens in the context of community, and so healing happens in community yes. too. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, your new book kind of walks through what I think is an adverse or traumatic experience for a lot of us is mm-hmm. in seasons of waiting and disappointment and heartache and a lot of Mm. that. And so I'd love to hear how you kind of married this concept Mm. um, and what prompted you to write a book about waiting. Yes. Really Again, another, lots of layers to (laughs) that question. Yeah. I mean, when I think about waiting, it's both a universal and unique experience. Mm -hmm. So none of us will be able to make it through life without waiting for the small and the big things. And at the same time, our experiences of waiting are unique because Mm -hmm. we are. And Mm -hmm. so we're moving through the waiting unique to us. And it's kind of like a collision of our past and our present and the hopes that we have in the future. Mm -hmm. And part of, of course, why I wanted to write this book comes from a personal place. Yeah. Navigating my own seasons of waiting and not really finding resources that spoke to the depth of what I needed navigating waiting. 
honestly, the conversations felt pretty shallow and I really wanted to create something that deepened the conversation Mm -hmm. around waiting. Because for me, waiting introduced me to all of these things that were incredibly challenging. How do I navigate uncertainty? What do I do when I'm disappointed? When life feels out of control, um, grief, just fill in the blank. Yeah. So uh, really in some ways feel like I wrote a book I wish I had Mm. um, in a lot of other seasons and moments of trying to figure out how to move through waiting. As you were listing those emotions, they're all ones that like generally people are pretty uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like grief, (laughs) despair, Mm -hmm. loneliness, uh, disappointment. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are ones that like I feel like if you were going to write a list of like, if I could never feel this again. (laughs) Um, But I I think think they're the emotions I also try to dismiss the most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the topic of waiting feels mm-hmm. like it's another thing like trauma that people dismiss or try to um, minimize or make smaller like oh it's not that big of a deal yeah or it's okay you know like especially when disappointment yeah so, we want to rush through funny. we want to push aside yeah. mm-hmm. uh, can you help us explore a little bit like why not do that like mm-hmm. a we probably mm-hmm. can't mm-hmm. <laughs> we might have to wait in general but mm-hmm. what kind of benefits are for us or what's the outcome of embracing the waiting mm-hmm. and learning from the waiting yeah. um and and even learning from those emotions of discomfort around some of that stuff mm-hmm. what can we learn what does waiting have to teach us yes wow what a great question well, I I see waiting, and obviously I've done a deep dive around waiting, so maybe right. this feels a little clearer to me, but <laughs> I really see waiting as a means of transformation. Mm. And that's not something at face value we think waiting can offer us. Right. Similar to grief, uh, grief feels like the only thing that, or the only experience we can have in grief is uh, a taking one. Mm. We can't mm. imagine that it has something to give us or mm-hmm. offer us. And for me, waiting often felt like that. It was just here to withhold or to take um, things that I really cared for or Mm -hmm. longed for. So I see waiting as a means of transformation now and Mm -hmm. really redefining what waiting is. Mm Because I think for me, I had associated waiting with passivity Mm -hmm. and powerlessness that, okay, waiting means I sit here and I twiddle my thumbs until life happens to me, better or for worse. Right. And like you referred to the word agency, um, being able to engage our waiting from an empowered place where Mm. we recognize, oh, I have agency over my life. Right. And obviously we don't have control over everything, but we certainly have agency. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the distinctions I attempt to make in the book is what's the difference between having control and having agency. So I feel like I could say so many things to that, but my hope for the reader as they move through the book is that they would be able to see waiting in a different light, that they could see it as a means for transformation to remove the things that don't belong and to step into the things that do. Yeah, and kind of engage Mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like when I think a lot of parts of in between seasons are waiting does feel really like I'm out of control? How do we regain that agency And what is kind of the key to taking back some of that Mm -hmm. for us? Yeah. I think, and this reminds me of work I would do in Mm -hmm. session with a client, but I think uh, a part of it is slowing down long enough to Mm -hmm. realize what's driving the, that um, disempowered feeling that we carry around in the waiting. Mm -hmm. Like, what do I believe about myself? What do I believe about the way life works? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we've had a lot of, you know, painful, disempowering experiences in the past, a lot of disappointment, and all of that informs what we believe right now about the weight and what is possible and what's not. So I think part of that is slowing down and evaluating uh, the associations that we've made with waiting, Mm -hmm. the beliefs that we hold, and kind of going on the journey of reworking that, reworking Mm. the associations that I hold and the beliefs that I carry around. Because I think if those can shift, then we can see waiting differently. We can engage it differently. And the reality is, is that we may still very much be waiting. Like our circumstances may not have changed at all, but there's been a real shift on the inside so that we can relate to that weight differently. Differently. I kind of think in that situation, like the waiting is going to happen regardless. Like if if this is not the time for something to come to us or if we're kind of in that in-between season, it's going to happen regardless. And I kind of think like time's going to pass anyway. And so how do we step in and engage in the process enough to 
like you were saying, glean some of the gifts that it has and and actually gain rather than just feeling like it's taking from us. Yes. That's a really beautiful reframe and an invitation. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was going to jump in and say, I'm wondering how we can even use a little bit of this time to redefine some of that waiting. I know you've mentioned that a little bit, mm-hmm. but I often think of waiting as I'm waiting for something. Yeah. Like there's an end result at that waiting. Mm. Uh, I'm waiting for my trip I'm going on. I'm waiting for my broken foot to heal. I'm waiting mm. for... A relationship to happen, an X, Y, Z. Yeah. What if we don't know what we're waiting for? We're Mm -hmm. feeling aimless or Mm -hmm. I come out of something and I feel disappointed that something didn't happen, but now I don't know what's next. I don't know what to wait for. How do you redefine Mm -hmm. waiting? Mm -hmm. Is there a something at the end? Mm -hmm. Is that where we pick up agency and find it along the way? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Yes. Yes. That's a great question. The book, in a lot of ways, addresses how binary we can be. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain why I'm kind of like go around to get to where I'm going. But kind of this, the book helps us move from this binary way of thinking to this both and framework. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. And your question reminded me of that because it's not solely about the outcome. It's also about the process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're not negating the other. Yeah. Um, in the pursuit of one. Mm-hmm. So like the, the process matters and the outcome matters because the relationship that you want, the baby you want, the financial shift you want, all of that mm-hmm. matters. Mm-hmm. So the outcome matters and we're not, again, trying to minimize or invalidate right. that. Mm-hmm. But I think if we can dignify the process and we can see value in the process, mm-hmm. um, then the weight just feels different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of moving from, okay, well, life will feel better or feel more fulfilling when I get to Mm -hmm. X. And I think just our world is kind of hardwired for outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to hold both of these together that, okay, where I am right now in the present, in in the process that I'm in, Mm -hmm. it has value. It matters. Mm -hmm. Giving weight to it, seeing that it, it has something to give you as I'm moving towards the thing that I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that both and framework has really revolutionized yeah. my own life personally and then in my work with clients, constantly moving from this either or black and white yeah. way of approaching life to what if we hold both of them? Mm-hmm. What if they both have value? What if mm-hmm. they can occupy space together? Yeah. How would that change what waiting feels like for you? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that both and really hits on that transformation. Like that's where we transform and Mm -hmm. that's where we grow. And I think as individuals, we're wired for growth. Like we want that. It's good to want more. It's good to see future, to see hope, Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, But also to stop treating life like a little checklist Mm -hmm. because I think we often think like, oh, when I get this or have this or do this. And I think Mm -hmm. that even really parallels really a ton to the healing process and work we do. And I'm totally guilty of that, of like, I just want this to be healed or Mm -hmm. I just want to be able to handle this better. But then when I am able to handle this in a more effective way, I don't even notice it because I like, mm-hmm. I've already done it and I've moved on and now I want something else. Mm-hmm. And I know in my personal work, my therapist always has to bring me back to be like, hold on, like celebrate that. Yeah. Like, this is huge. Yeah. That is so much. You're in a totally different spot with this topic than you mm-hmm. were a year ago. Yeah. Celebrate that. And you can still say, I want to keep growing, mm-hmm. but the transformation and growth mm-hmm. is like all a part of the, what waiting has to teach us, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hey friends, I really love this episode with Barb and I hope that you're enjoying it too. Personally, I feel like it spoke to the tension that I feel in the depths of waiting. And in the last few years, I've come to terms that waiting for me is often coupled with grief. I don't like to admit it and maybe I don't even name it, but my understanding and exploration of grief has taken me down a redemptive and healing road. It actually started with our Digital Emotional Health Masterclass, the ways we grieve. This class helped me expand my understanding of grief and the biological process that we all go through when we're wading through grief. It helped me normalize my experience and gave me the tools to walk through it and regain agency. Naming grief is hard, but what I've learned is that not naming it doesn't make it go away. So if this interview has been stirring some things in you and you want to better understand the ways we grieve, I would encourage you to check out this resource at onsiteworkshops.com slash grief. And if you use the code podcast at the checkout, you'll get an additional 15% off. 
All right, friends, now back to the interview. I think I have a particular difficult relationship with waiting because I'm so future-oriented. And I remember, like, once learning about different personality types on the Enneagram and how they're all different oriented to time. So some people are oriented to the past and some people are oriented to the present and some people are oriented Mm. to the future. And I feel very oriented to the future and I think I can miss out on what's happening here, Mm -hmm. being present Mm -hmm. in anticipation or expectation of what's to come. Um, And someone in my life gave me very good advice Mm. years ago uh, because I was just so dissatisfied. I was like, this is this season is wasted. Mm. Like it's nothing good is coming out of this. I just want X. And they said, how can you choose to be content while contending? Mm. How can you be content in this moment um, and see what the present is offering you, see what those, what you're learning, what you're teaching, what, how you're tra- being transformed, but not at the expense of what you're contending for because the more is not wrong. It's not mm. wrong to want more and to grow and to have this thing, mm. but it is wrong if you're doing it at the expense of what you're currently having. And mm-hmm. so that's just kind of mm-hmm. what I've been thinking in this process, especially being so future oriented because I can, I can just like you, Hannah, I can skip the celebration because I'm already onto the next thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if yeah. you all relate to that. Yes, but. I do. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of one of the devotionals that I wrote. Um, I tell a story about going to a yoga class yeah. and the yoga instructor at the beginning of the class is uh, telling us how flexibility comes from waiting, not from working. Mm. And how mm. when we step into a pose, the way that we gain flexibility most effectively is to wait in the pose rather than working and striving into the pose. In order, and I was like, oh, that feels like I don't like that. <laughs> I don't call that. Yes, yes. And I just grabbed my phone and just kind of wrote that down because it felt so profound to me. Yeah. And That's I think. Beautiful. Often why we don't want to wait in the pose, so to speak, is Mm -hmm. because there's a rush of uncomfortable sensations Mm -hmm. and feelings, and we don't like to stay there. Mm -mm. But the the interesting thing is that as we we choose to wait in the pose, so to speak, uh, to use that analogy, we grow a tolerance and a capacity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the uncomfortable feelings Mm -hmm. and sensations. And I think the more we make that a practice, again— the more we're able to relate to our waiting seasons differently. Yeah. I mean, I even think about like our window of tolerance. Like Mm -hmm. that's a goal that we're all Mm -hmm. trying to strive for in emotional health. And so as a therapist, can you tell us a little bit about what a window of tolerance is and if it could relate to this? Oh, absolutely. I actually use that. uh, I talk about the window of tolerance in the introduction to one of the seasons. Mm. So for, you know, the window of tolerance in the middle of that window is where we're at baseline. It's very comfortable. And if we fly outside of that window, if there's something that stimulates us to the extent that we go out of that window, we might dissociate, um, Mm. we might numb out. There's all kinds of responses that we can have when we're flooded, we're overwhelmed. Mm. Yeah. What's so interesting, and I remember reading this in grad school about how it's right, right at the edge of that window is actually where we we grow and we heal. Mm. Um, and so it's this commitment to challenging ourselves to step outside of what feels comfortable, not not to re-traumatize ourselves, you know, right. not to push ourselves beyond um, what we have capacity for, but to um, to step to the edge of that window mm. and to challenge ourselves to sit with what feels uncomfortable, to yeah. feel the emotions that we would prefer to avoid. Um, and when we kind of hang out there at the edge of the of the window, we really do grow a lot. And there's a mm. lot of healing that becomes possible mm-hmm. because of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be, uh, you know, interesting to have this conversation about waiting and uncomfortable feelings and all that without talking about the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. We've all been waiting to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've probably all had to sit in a lot of uncomfort and grief and yeah. all of that. And I think, at least for me, I know like as life has quote unquote kind of resumed, kind of gone back to normal, I feel mm-hmm. like I felt a... Uh, prompting inside of me to be like, okay, dumb waiting, like go live your life, like go do these things, X, Y, Z, like accomplish Mm -hmm. this, you do this. And that's like also not working for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so like, how has your concept of waiting as you've been leaning into this, this topic in the last couple of years, how's that shown up for you personally? What are you Mm -hmm. seeing with people professionally? Yes. 
Yes. I think uh, globally we were forced yeah. into a, a waiting season. <laughs> we were forced into our homes for a period of time where we couldn't go out and about. We couldn't hug people. Mm-hmm. Like it was, yeah, such a unique time globally, a really challenging time. And um, I mean, as a therapist and a lot of therapists that I know, we got real busy. Yeah. Um, because I, I think we were all challenged to confront things that we didn't have totally. to because we we weren't isolated or waiting mm-hmm. in the way that the pandemic um, caused us to be. Yeah. So in a way, waiting makes us notice or yeah. can definitely yes. set off little alarms. Yes, definitely. So definitely seeing a real uptick in people coming mm-hmm. to therapy, um, some of which for the very first time because yeah. there was never – quote-unquote need for them to come. They were noticing that all the ways that they had coped with life, they didn't have access to anymore. And um, so it it really did drive a lot of people to therapy offices, which I'm like, hey, that's awesome. Yes, because I'm really curious to see what the Mm. long-term benefits Mm -hmm. of that will be, that a lot of people have started to do their own work Mm -hmm. um, either for the first time or doing some deeper work and how that can impact things uh, long-term. So yeah, I think waiting feels, has felt maybe even more applicable than it ever has because of uh, the way that our world has looked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think about some of those things that come up in our waiting, like from a mental health perspective, anxiety, grief, depression, mm-hmm. coping behaviors that maybe aren't the healthiest. Like how do we manage that and how mm-hmm. do we walk through that well mm-hmm. um, and care for ourselves in the midst of waiting? How do we actually care for our emotions and our mental health mm-hmm. in waiting? Yes. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, the, the grief piece really stands out to me because – a correlation that I'm constantly coming back to in the book is mm. that if you're waiting, you're grieving. Mm. That's good. I think we assume that, maybe not all of us, but I know for myself, I didn't fully realize that uh, waiting for something to arrive in my life is just as much grief as if I were to lose something that I already had. Mm. And really just helping to draw that correlation and that relationship between waiting and grieving. And I think, you know, how we wait well, I think has a few different parts to it. Um, I think slowing down is really important. Yeah. Um, And that's challenging for us. We don't like to Mm -hmm. slow down. Because like we were saying before, it means that we have to feel things that we prefer not to Mm -hmm. feel. Exactly. Um, And I think doing all of this in community is really important. I think waiting in isolation is, is not good. And it feels that much heavier trying to do it by ourselves. And the healing process feels impossible outside of community. So I think slowing down reaching out in vulnerability to the people that feel Mm -hmm. safe in your world is really important. Meeting with a therapist where you can unpack, you know, the anxiety that you feel, the grief that you feel, Mm -hmm. the disappointment that you don't know what to do with, the anger that you feel because maybe you've, I just think of, you know, women in particular that are, you know, wanting to have a baby and struggling with infertility. And every month they're confronted with Mm -hmm. the reminder that they aren't pregnant. And, what do I do with the anger that I feel in those moments? Like we need to process that because it reminds me of um, in the burnout book, the authors describe emotions as tunnels Mm. and what happens when we just go halfway through that tunnel and we don't go all the way through. We have all of these incomplete stress cycles. We have all of these emotions Mm. that are felt only 20% or 40%. um, And that builds up inside of us. So I think how to wait well, um, there's a lot of kind of things that, we can do in order to wait well, slow down, be in community, talk with somebody that can help you process all of the emotions that maybe you didn't know what to do with. Yeah. Um, so it feels like there's a few layers to do that. Oh, for sure. I, I think, love that. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you to say more to the, I think that's an uncommon understanding of waiting, the piece about even waiting for something that you're looking forward to or in front of you mm-hmm. as a process of grieving. Mm-hmm. Can you speak more to that? I think- mm-hmm. A lot of people, I may have a hard time 
understanding that, well, like, oh, if I want this or if it's a good mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. then almost like I don't have the right to grieve it mm-hmm. or it's not important to grieve or something like that. So mm-hmm. I, I assume I'm not alone in that thought. So for anyone mm-hmm. listening, can you kind of mm-hmm. lead us through kind of what that looks like? What I mean, I think all grief is good grief because it allows mm-hmm. us to process and engage yes. and acknowledge that things matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but how does that relate to even the things that maybe we don't recognize as needing to grieve. Yes, yes. I mean, the picture that comes to mind is, you know, when, when we think of something that was in our lives that we've lost, there's this this vacancy, this unoccupied space in mm-hmm. our in our world. And that is grief, right? We experience all those different stages of grief because there's something that was in our lives that no longer is. And when we think about waiting for something, um, there's that vacancy. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, that vacancy still exists. That mm-hmm. unoccupied area of our lives is just as real as the other mm-hmm. scenario. And so I, I think, you know, grief happens um, when there's uh, either something in our lives that we've had that's no longer here, or there's something that's not here that mm-hmm. we're longing to be mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, whether it's something internal or external, it could be a relationship, it could be a, a baby, it could be a career taking off. It could be financial uh, breakthrough or it could be um, my mental and emotional health. I um, am struggling with the same things over and over and over again. Addiction, like wanting to see those things shift. And there's grief in uh, those things not being present or those Mm. things not looking the way that we would hope that they Mm. would. And I think that perspective can be so liberating for Mm -hmm. all of us um, because if we don't have that language for it, if we can't name our experience for what it is, then we can't experience the relief um, that comes from that. So being able to name waiting as grief, I think can bring a ton of relief and a ton of validation to our experiences I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have maybe a a piece of encouragement or a step people can take if they're supporting someone that's in a season of waiting. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking Mackenzie and I were talking about this concept today of like when there's not a greeting card for that. Like, oh my gosh, like when you can't get pregnant again or hey, you didn't get that promotion. Like I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times culturally we're really accustomed to grieve some things, like maybe not comfortable, but at least used to the concept of mm-hmm. death or sickness or things like that. And so when there's all the other things we're allowed to grieve, I think as, as support systems and as communities, it's hard enough to accept it within ourselves sometimes yeah. to say like, hey, that's worthy of grief. Mm-hmm. Like me wanting that is, it's, I'm sad that I don't have this. Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't something I've lost, it's the mm-hmm. loss of the current or the future um, or the not now. Um, mm-hmm. But even as from an outside perspective, what, how would you encourage someone to kind of come alongside in those uncomfortable, mm-hmm. recognizing it, naming it as grief and supporting someone in that yeah. waiting period. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Mm. What comes to mind is I was just talking with someone today about exactly what you're saying, that when we're waiting for something and we're grieving in that wait, we don't have somebody knocking on our door, giving us a casserole. saying, I'm so sorry, and offering their condolences. Mm -hmm. So this kind of grief feels Mm -hmm. um, intangible. It often feels invisible, Mm -hmm. and we feel invisible. Our grief feels invisible in the process. So Mm -hmm. having people around us that can make an invisible grief visible Mm -hmm. and say, hey, I see that, and that's real, Mm -hmm. is huge. Mm -hmm. And I think curiosity is big. I think Mm -hmm. that to have people in our lives, and us included towards others, to be curious, mm-hmm. what is it? What is it like for you to not have this in your life, or just to be to ask curious and compassionate questions, mm-hmm. um, especially when our experiences look different? So, a lot of my friends have a family, mm-hmm. and so for them, they may not be able to relate on that same level, but they've learned to ask questions about what is it like to have another birthday, and for this to not be in your world, mm-hmm. or what is it like to go into a new year, and for that not to, mm-hmm. you know, so I think curiosity is really powerful. Um, And it doesn't mean that you have to do a deep dive and put your heart and soul on the table. Mm -hmm. But I think it reminds us that we're seen Mm -hmm. and that that grief isn't happening without someone caring to notice it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think curiosity is a great starting place. I was going to ask if you had some examples of people showing up for you Mm -hmm. and doing that well. So thank Mm -hmm. you for for leading out in that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think so much of this conversation just kind of brings me back to um, the seasonality because I think I would love to hear why you named the book Season of Waiting because Mm -hmm. in my own life, I think I've experienced that where I've been in seasons of really wanting something. And then when I do have the thing, there is a book called Life is in the Transitions. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the fact that we have like 30 major transitions in our life. So we're almost always right before, in the middle, or right after a transition. And I think transitions and waiting go so hand in hand. And so what was that seasonality aspect of the Mm -hmm. book? And can you speak to a little bit of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, waiting feels so different based on the season that you're in. And I I think like the physical seasons help to tell that story Mm -hmm. that when you're in a winter season, I mean- And you kind of structured the book that way, right? You have fall, winter, spring, and summer seasons of waiting Mm -hmm. and how they're different, right? Yes. And all of the devotions that live in each season speak to what it feels like to live in that particular season of waiting. So if we think about a winter season, like physically the world around us is bare, it's cold, it gets dark earlier. Um, we feel isolated. We can't like go out and about. It just is a more somber time mm-hmm. yeah. generally. But there's also a distinct beauty to to winter when it snows, mm-hmm. the, the whole world is covered in, you know, this white, beautiful snow. And um, so it's not that winter is without beauty, but it's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of take those same ideas and apply it to our seasons of waiting, that if you're in a winter season of waiting, you may feel as though there is no visible mm-hmm. um, evidence mm-hmm. that anything's going to change. You might yeah. feel really depressed in that place. You might feel really hopeless. Mm-hmm. So the seasonal piece felt really important. And I had always envisioned the book moving through waiting in those seasons. Even the concept of seasons, I think, is permission-giving because seasons come to an end and bring something else. Mm -hmm. And even how do we hold out hope in the middle of that? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think um, one part of it is giving you permission to recognize the season that you're in. Mm -hmm. um, To kind of, and as when I was writing these devotionals and placing them in the different seasons, essentially wanting to come alongside the reader and say, hey, you're in this season and this is what it's like. And I know that's hard. And also there's purpose and value in this season. Mm -hmm. We're not bypassing anything. We're not minimizing anything. We're being able to do the work to be able to see that even here, that there's purpose and value in it. And that you're not going to stay here forever. You're going to inevitably transition from winter to spring and from spring to summer. And and honestly, the seasonal aspect reminds me a lot of the stages of grief Hmm. that we don't move through these. We don't move through the stages of grief in a linear way. We're, we're jumping around in our seasons of waiting. It can feel like that too. It just felt like the most accurate reflection of what it feels like to move through waiting that we wait in seasons. um, We don't necessarily move through them in a linear way, just like when we're grieving and, yeah, that I just had always envisioned it that way. That's very cool. Yeah. That's a very cool way to set it up and kind of conceptualize it for people. And again, so much just like making sense of someone's experience and naming it mm-hmm. and saying, okay, I'm in this season. Mm-hmm. And how do I find value in that season rather than burying my head and pretending I'm not? Right. Even. You've kind of referenced it a couple of times, and I'm just wondering how you married both your faith and your profession as a therapist into this book and what your kind of your hopes are around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really similar to the way that, um, well, in this book, I will say that I'm a little bit more explicit about yeah. my faith yeah. um, than I probably would be sitting with a client. I'm, I really want to defer to my client to see like, what is your if we're talking about waiting in the context of your faith, what does that look like for you? How do you want to incorporate that? Like Mm -hmm. really wanting that to be personal. But a lot of me trying to reconcile waiting also came alongside reconciling where does my faith fit into that? Like if I believe that God loves me, this doesn't feel like love. This season of waiting doesn't feel like being loved. Um, And trying to reconcile how those two things go together and how they can complement one another, how my Mm. faith can support me in the waiting and how waiting differently can bring me closer to God in my faith. And I think instead of them being competitive, that like kind of, again, going from a binary way of seeing things to a both and. Yeah. And somebody uh, somebody that's been really helpful uh, for me 
in terms of reconciling my faith and my seasons of waiting has been Richard War. Um, mm. He's been someone that I've thought of a lot because he talks about waiting and he talks about uncertainty and how interesting it is that as people of faith, we are so allergic to uncertainty. Yeah. And that really the the deepest faith is, this is more his words, I'm kind of putting it in my own though, but the deepest faith is one that can bear up under uncertainty, that I don't have to eradicate uncertainty in order to be a person of faith. And I think that's been a really big piece of my own journey. Like, Mm. how can I really feel grounded in my faith while also still navigating uncertainty? Mm. I think that kind of loops back to even how you started the conversation where we asked, like, what's your season look like? And you were like, it's full, it's good, and Mm -hmm. it's really hard. Mm. I think sometimes some spirituality or religion can lean more towards just like, it's good. Like, let's call Mm -hmm. it good. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I grew up in a Christian context and a lot of my experience was like, if I believed in God, it kind of had to be good. Like Mm -hmm. God's in control. It's all good. Mm -hmm. And I kind of learned to dismiss the hard. And I think something I've learned as I've gotten older and really taken from other spiritual practices for me too, is like the heart is a beautiful teacher. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's been a really beautiful central theme of this whole conversation is the Mm -hmm. duality that, that it's going to be good and hard. And sometimes it may not feel good. Sometimes it may not feel hard. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to, we don't have to mask both. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like I do that a lot of times too. Like, Oh, it's really busy. It's really hard, but but it's all good. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Maybe today's just kind of shitty. Yeah, so let's call yeah. it what it is. And yeah. um, but that can be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow I have permission for it to be really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that goes to the seasons of things too. Like we can jump around. Like yeah. it's okay if we we kind of have have permission to move yeah. to like have movement to move through things mm-hmm. um, instead of. I think sometimes um, we did a podcast on suicidality and um, around just like our own comfort around discomfort and pain. Yeah. And I think I I learned for a while to be so comfortable with pain that mm. I had a hard time being okay. Yeah. And so I think with waiting too, like it's okay when you're moving on too. It's okay if your dreams change. It's okay. Yeah. So giving the permission for the both and is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even that phrase, that simple phrase, it's okay. Yeah. Sometimes we assume that the or I assume uh, that things need to be complex or complicated um, in order to be powerful or beneficial. But often the simplest words um, have the most profound impact. I see that Mm. in my work with clients all the time. It's okay, or it's not your fault, or I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. or I love you. Like these really simple childlike phrases um, really make such a big difference in our lives. So yeah, I think... Gosh, if if any reader gets anything out of the book, if they walk away feeling like, oh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay that today is right. hard. It's okay that today's great. Like it's okay that it's both. That would that would I feel like I've done my job. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Hannah, you saying maybe your dreams change. Like I had kind of like an emotional reaction to that. And I'm trying <laughs> to like process in this moment of like what happens when we've been waiting so long for something. Huh. And I think I have the tendency to like hold on with, you know, I have my hands in clenched fist right now (laughs) and hold on so firmly to it Mm. that I don't leave room enough to say, is this still what I want? Mm. Is this still what I want to be pursuing? Am I still waiting on something that I actually want? Because there's so Mm. many times in my life that I've been so focused on it that I haven't seen other possibilities, that I haven't seen other Mm. things I've been called to. And so I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think there's even grief in waiting for something and in the middle of a waiting Mm. season shifting our focus and saying, actually, that's not what I want anymore. And I'm grieving that I've changed and I'm grieving that I don't want that and that I never got it, but I'm really glad I didn't because now I want this thing over here. Mm. And so I just think that's a really interesting dichotomy of loving ourselves even in the middle of evolution or change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's very, very important perspective. Um, And Mm. I was just thinking of, um, when we're waiting, like in a lot of other experiences too, we can over-identify with what we want. Yeah. And what we want becomes intertwined with who we are. Mm. And I think when we're confronted with those moments, we're like, wait, if I don't want that, who am I? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it asks these bigger level identity questions. That's probably why it feels so hard. You know, it's like I wanted this and wanting this is part of me. And mm-hmm. so how do I separate this thing that I've wanted from me and I can still be me, but what I want looks different. 
Yeah. I think a lot of times we have clients who come and have reached that epitome in their career at the height, um, and they come and do a living center program, not because they're in the depths, but they are at the height of success or achievement, and it didn't feel the way they thought Mm. it did because they lost sight around that and because Mm -hmm. their identity was so wrapped up in pursuing this thing that then they achieved it and they didn't actually want it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it has been a challenge that I have felt over the last couple of years of like just reassessing my motives. Like whose finish line am I, am I chasing? I don't want to be running a half marathon and end up crossing the marathon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it goes back to like allowing yourself to still grieve that though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I wanted that and that was good. I wanted it. I'm sad. I don't want that anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, and I've changed and I've evolved and I'm happy with where I've changed too. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with who I'm becoming. Still Mm -hmm. hard. But I really wanted that at some point. Mm-hmm. Younger me still mm-hmm. does probably. Yeah. Like I know I'm adjusting with that a lot as my spiritual journey has changed a ton in the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. I am still having to grieve and undo like, oh, that, like my childhood self is still really attached to that. Mm-hmm. It's still really holding mm-hmm. on to this thing. Yeah. And my adult self doesn't want to be near it. Mm-hmm. But why is my body like mm-hmm. leaning into it? Why is my body processing? Mm-hmm. It's like because that part's a piece of me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I need to acknowledge the grief that she's feeling for what this was mm, or what this would be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really important thing too. It, when our dreams do change, mm-hmm. when our hopes change, mm-hmm. that you don't have to minimize that it still might hurt yes. or it still might be sad. Yes, yeah. And the word that was coming to mind is integration, that that mm-hmm. part of you that wanted that thing or had that dream that it can mm-hmm. be integrated into who you are just may not be an active, present yeah. part of what you're pursuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. This has been so good and such a really beautiful conversation. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for the way that you've just gently led us through this. I think just as we round out, um, you shared a little bit of what your hopes would be for people, but what would just be a piece mm-hmm. of encouragement for someone who's in the middle of maybe um, that waiting season? They're in the right now mm-hmm. and not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you encourage them with? Mm. A lot of what I would want is probably similar to what I would want sitting with a client. Um, Mm. I would want them to feel really heard and seen and known and understood um, that I could come alongside them as a fellow waiter, that I wrote this book in process. I I didn't write it on the other side. So I know what it feels like to be a human in this process. So for the reader to feel, yeah, really known and seen and understood and validated. And secondly, and I actually start the devotional uh, the whole book with this particular devotional where I address the shame that mm. attaches itself to us into our seasons mm. of waiting. And I would want people to be encouraged to know that the wait isn't their fault, mm. um, to remove the shame from their seasons of waiting and that they can see themselves in their seasons of waiting in their lives outside of that shame mm. and um, that they can see the way as a means to be transformed and to be healed and to be more whole versions of themselves and that it's like we've been saying this both and that right now where I am in the present that there's a lot for me here and the thing that I want matters and I can still like you said contend for it and pursue it thank you Barb oh you're welcome thank you thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.